Thank you so much, Tony, for those kind words. And I want to say to you all here at Bobby Branch how happy I am to be back with you. I can truthfully tell you that every time I've been here, including the gospel meeting, your lectureships, and your summer series, every time has been a very encouraging experience. And I'm very thankful for this opportunity. As he indicated to you, I'm no longer doing local work with one congregation, but speaking by appointments and gospel meetings and getting the privilege to do that quite frequently. And I'm grateful to our Heavenly Father that he continues to give me those opportunities, including this one. Let's get busy. Back in 1908, Archibald McLean wrote a book titled Alexander Campbell as a Preacher. He wrote about the style of our brother's preaching. He wrote about his approach to various topics. He wrote about his method and style in the pulpit, seldom gesturing, seldom moving, but captivating his audience with his use of the English language. And on page 31 of that book, he wrote about a prominent Baptist preacher who rode a horse 30 miles to hear Alexander Campbell preach years and years ago, of course. After he heard the sermon that Alexander Campbell preached, the Baptist preacher commented, well, it was hardly worth the time and the effort to hear such a short sermon. And somebody said, you might ought to look at your watch. It had been two and a half hours. And he hardly knew that that much time had elapsed. It indicates, of course, that Campbell had the ability to hold his audience in their attention to the things that he said. Through the years, as I have read a considerable amount of restoration literature, I have been very impressed with some of the accounts of men who have long been gone from this earth. Phyllis and I, as Tony indicated a moment ago, lived in Florence, Alabama, the Shoals area. We lived there for 30 years, almost within the shadow of the T.B. Laramore home. And from things that I have read and heard down through the years, T.B. Laramore may have been one of the greatest preachers in the churches of Christ in any era. 
I wish I could have heard him. I went to Frieda Hardiman to study when I graduated from high school, and I was privileged. I think myself to be greatly privileged to have been there when Brother H.A. Dixon was the president. He was a great preacher. I'm not here to glorify these men. I'm here to draw a comparison. Through the years of history, all the way back into ancient history, there have been great, notable orators. In 2013, Brother Wayne Jackson who then lived in Stockton, California, authored a book called Jesus Christ, the Master Teacher. And he put all of this in good perspective when he wrote, and I read to you two short paragraphs. He said, Socrates was perhaps the greatest teacher of the Greek world. His student, Plato, along with Aristotle, mesmerized the antique world with their reason and eloquence of persuasion. Influential teachers punctuate the annals of human history, but generally they all fade into relative obscurity. And then he wrote, Demosthenes in the 4th century B.C. is depicted as the greatest speaker of the Greek world and yet who can cite one line from his famous oration entitled On the Crown? Cicero was the supreme orator of the Roman world. His speeches have been viewed as the epitome of oratorical skills for history, for his, for centuries rather. And then Brother Jackson asked, can anyone from memory reference a solitary speech that came from his lips? Great Britain's William Gladstone, a four-time prime minister of the United Kingdom, was known as a superb public speaker. It is recorded in the pages of history that he held audiences numbering in the thousands, spellbound at times for as long as five hours. Yet his name is scarcely known today in common American society. And then Brother Jackson wrote this conclusion. By contrast, reflect upon the enduring words of Christ. His words adorn the records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of which multiplied millions of copies are circulated worldwide each year. The records of Jesus' sermons and sayings 
of only three and one-half years are read alike by young and old, wealthy and impoverished, prominent and obscure. And children are fascinated and scholars are enthralled as they read those great words spoken by Jesus. We sang a few moments ago, Son of Man, Son of God. He came to this earth on a mission, knowing what his destiny was. And in his brief time that he went about in his earthly ministry, he established himself indeed as a great teacher and a great preacher. You see, a great teacher is first of all someone who informs, who instructs, who educates you. But a great teacher is also someone who will not only inform you, but who will explain it and making sure that you understand the meaning of what is being taught. But then a great teacher goes another step and knows the power and knows the effectiveness of illustrating in a way that people relate to. But someone has said, the greatest teachers are those who in the process of instructing, illustrating, and explaining will also inspire you and cause you to want to apply that which you learn and will inspire you to be a better person, a successful person. And in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, he excelled in all of those and spoke those things, preached those things, taught those things, and illustrated those things that not only inspire us for life on earth, but that help us to accomplish that for which we are here, which is to bring praise and honor to our Heavenly Father and upon our demise here on earth, we pass with hope awaiting the day of judgment an entrance into that celestial city where we see him face to face. The Bible depicts for us Jesus Christ in a number of ways. And I point out to you before I read to you some scriptures 
that he was a man who was very successful and effective as a preacher for God, a teacher that influenced lives that he saw on while he was on earth and millions that have read his words since. However, as you know from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he probably had as many enemies as anybody who ever did teaching and preaching. And they were intense in being his enemies, determined not to allow him to continue but to put him to death. He knew what acceptance meant, but he also knew what rejection meant. For as we are told, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Our Lord was a marvelous example, therefore, of perseverance, dedication, determination, and loyalty unto his heavenly Father. I want you to listen as I read to you six scriptures that I have selected from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that record for us where Jesus spoke, to whom he spoke, and in most cases with an explicit indication of the reaction to his speaking. Listen to it. First of all, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And there followed him great multitudes of people. Note that. When I say the word multitudes, how many do you picture in your mind? Well, not a dozen, not even a hundred. But to give you some biblical guideline for establishing what is indicated by multitudes, remember that was the word that was used to describe the crowd of 5,000 that he fed. And on another occasion, 4,000. We would call that a multitude as well. And it was right after this statement of his teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel that you come right into chapter 5 of the book of Matthew and you know what follows there. And here is the introductory point made by Matthew. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. 
And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You know the rest of it, don't you? The Beatitudes and that powerful Sermon on the Mount that is recorded there in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Covering a wide variety of topics, teaching life, teaching attitudes, teaching the laws of God. On a mountain, a high place, and he went up into that mountain, and when he was set, he opened his mouth and preached to a multitude. In the book of Matthew in chapter 13, Matthew says, when he was come unto his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? And that reaction is found in numerous places in these four accounts of the gospel that the people who heard him were astonished. They were amazed, not only by what he said, but the manner in which he said it. And they wondered, where in the world does a man get this kind of wisdom and have this kind of ability? We turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. We'll return to that notation later in the lesson. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. Have you noted in the synagogue, on a mountain, by the seashore, wherever he is, there are people following and he used every opportunity to teach. He didn't give them random thoughts. He didn't give them human philosophy. He taught them, as the scriptures indicate, the will of God. In Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us of another occasion and another location where he taught Luke chapter 5, verse 3, And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would 
thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. The crowd was pressing. It was difficult for him to be able to speak to all of them with them pressing up so closely. And so he got into Peter's boat and he said, get out away from the shore a little ways, Peter. And he sat down there in the boat and talked to the people up on the shore of that sea. One final one. In John 8, the gospel according to John in chapter 8 And now you note with me another time, another place with the same action. Verse 2, and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. There is indication from the annals of history that that sitting down was sort of taken as a sign. He's ready to teach. Tony comes up here, stands at this spot. He's here to teach. Jesus went into the temple and he sat down and he taught them. They knew why he sat down. When you analyze this or you just sort of do a composite of it, you see him in the synagogue, you see him in a temple, you see him by the seaside, you see him on a mountain. You see him in all kinds of settings and you see a multitude of people following him everywhere. But one of the things that strikes me so much about Jesus in the pages of these four accounts of the gospel is he didn't have to have a big crowd. Do you remember those ever so known, ever so well-known verses or words rather that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Who spoke that? Jesus. To whom or to how many did he speak it? One person. Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. who came to him by night. And he'd been so impressed by what he had learned about Jesus, telling him, Master, we we know no one can do what you do unless he has the power of God. Jesus taught Nicodemus about being born again. And in the middle of that discourse, said, God so loved the world 
and then talked about himself, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he said that life is in his Son. You must be born again. What about these words? God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is the speaker. To how many did he say that? One. A woman. A Samaritan woman. And in that culture, just having a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, ooh, that would raise eyebrows and say, what's going on here? But he was tired. He had been walking a long way with his apostles. They knew a community was nearby, and they said, we'll go get some food. And while they were gone, he sat down on the well that we know as Jacob's well. When that Samaritan woman came out to get some water, and he looked at her, though a stranger she was, and said, can you give me a drink? She said, what are you going to get the water in? You have no vessel. And that began to open the door. And he told her about a water that he could give where you don't ever get thirsty again. Speaking of spiritual nourishment. And then they talked about worship. She would have been one to have gone to the mountain just north of there to worship. Gerizim. And she said, I know who, you're a Jew, you would go to Jerusalem. So there, one-on-one, he used that opportunity to give some of the greatest teaching about worship that is recorded anywhere in the Scriptures. God had a purpose in recording those conversations with one person and recording the discourses with a multitude. And he used different ways and methods by which he would do his teaching. It's fascinating to me when you stop and count and you get on your computer programs and come up with all of these, uh, the record of all of these things. But in the discourses that Jesus had, whether with one or 5,000, we have a record of over 200 times when he used questions to teach people. Making them think. Pilate would say, so who are you? 
And how did Jesus answer? It said, who do you say I am? At the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he turned to his own apostles and said, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They gave him some answers. He said, but who do you say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16. Remember, he was God in the flesh. I don't think he was asking for information. He was getting them to talk and think about who he is. He used questions. When the Pharisees came to him saying, So, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you that authority? And they handed him a stick of dynamite that was already lit, so to speak. How did he answer? He said, I'll answer that when you answer a question for me. John the Baptist, is he of God or man? Where did he come from? What's John the Tell me. And they thought, well, if we don't say he's from God, we'll be in trouble with the people. If we say he is from God, we're, <laughs> you know, they immediately sensed the dilemma that they were in, all because he asked them a question that really made them think. That's in Matthew 21. Then in Matthew 22, when they had a lawyer to come up to him and said, Rabbi, out of the law, with all the commandments, what's the greatest commandment? A trap question, a trick question. No matter which one he selected, it would be disrespectful of the ones he didn't select. He answered and said, There are two things on which the whole law hangs. The law and the prophets hang on two things. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see, they knew that there were over 600 different commandments God had given through Moses. Not to mention all of the, shall we say, additions that the rabbinical people would have added to it with their personal thinking. And he simplified it so powerfully. And when you think about it and you study it, you see a masterful answer. Because loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind is all of your vertical relationship. Loving your neighbor as yourself includes all of your horizontal relationships. Every law given either has to do with how you treat one another or it has to do with your attitude towards your maker. But folks, these things may be intriguing. They may, and I hope they're interesting to you. 
But there is one final point that I want you to take home with you tonight. Jesus Christ, as a teacher, as a preacher, had three distinguishing characteristics. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, and I want you to read with me. Matthew chapter 7. After that great Sermon on the Mount, found in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and the sermon itself ends at verse 27. Now read verses 28 and 29, the immediate response. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. J.W. McGarvey, in a commentary about all of this, says that that last part indicates to us how those scribes would hem and haul around and you could ask them something and they would give you an answer and, and as we find in the jargon that is used today in the media, they'd put a spin on it somewhere or another and when they'd get through, you still wouldn't know exactly what they were trying to say to you. And they were so indefinite about many of the things that they said. The thing that this indicates as he spoke with, as one with authority indicates to you that he didn't say to them, well, now, I may be wrong about this, but can you imagine reading that from the, the Savior? Well, now, popular opinion says, you know, and then give you which way the wind's blowing. Or, now, I, I think as we read this, we ought to consider the, the possibility that this could be, no. Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life. And few there be that find it. He said, Beware of false teachers. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And at times he was so definitive in what he said, speaking with such power and authority, the, the disciples came and said, Master, do you know that you have offended some of these people? 
he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Matthew chapter 15. And in stark contrast to our day of tolerance, and let's not be judgmental toward anybody, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, He made it inclusive and exclusive. In Mark 16, he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Inclusively, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Exclusively, he said, He that believeth not shall be damned. The next time somebody tries to argue with you about being judgmental and stating a conviction that is from God's Word, cite that to them. Jesus Himself said there are some that are going to be saved, there are some that are going to be lost. And in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, He said the ones that are going to be lost will far outnumber the ones that will be saved. Preachers. like Tony and me. And I don't even for a second entertain a thought that this is convicting of him. I know Tony too well. But we have a responsibility to speak with authority. Now, I'm not Jesus. I fully know that, of course. Jesus stood... As the Son of God. And what he spoke was from God. I don't have that authority. But I have this authority. From God's holy word. And therefore when I preach. And when you and I teach. We need to speak with the authority of Jesus as our authority. And say, this is what the Bible says. And that settles it. Or as one man said, when he reads what Jesus said, he says that's the way it is and it couldn't be any iser. It's just that way because that's what the Lord has said about it. And in a world of relativism, in a world of pluralism, in a world that is so concerned about being politically correct and not judging people, it scares us to death to say something as definitive as that's what the Bible says and that settles it. It is the truth. But so it must be. Second thing, and a characteristic of Jesus, He not only taught with authority, He lived what He taught. In the scripture that was read earlier in First Peter, Chapter 2, he set, Peter said, the example for us. 
He taught you'll be persecuted. But there's an honor in being persecuted as a Christian. Don't ever be ashamed of that. And Peter said, that came from the one who when he was beaten, when he was attacked, he didn't retaliate. He didn't run from it. He did what he taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there are people who hate him. There are people who despise him. There are people who curse him. But he died for them anyway. Peter said he did it all without sin. The writer to the letter, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews said the same thing in chapter 4 without sin. He was the model of what he preached. And finally, turn to John 8. John 8. The third distinguishing characteristic of Jesus is this. He taught the Word of God. Verse 28, Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Turn over to chapter 12. John chapter 12. And look at verses 49 and 50. For I have not spoken of myself but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. When I die, when I have preached my final sermon, taught my final class, if I have a moment to have a consciousness to think it over, those are the words by which I want to die. This is what God has said, and what God has said is what I have said. And let all of us as Bible teachers, let all of us as preachers follow in the footsteps of the master teacher 
who said, I'm not here to do my will. I came to do His. He told me what to say, and what He told me to say is what I'm saying to you. That is why we call Him the Master Teacher. He was faithful to God and lived what He taught, speaking with the authority that comes only from Almighty God. Now, that master teacher died on the cross for you. And he's the only hope that you have for eternal life. He's the only Savior, the only one by which you can have your sins forgiven. And if you're not a follower of His, make the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life and come and obey the gospel and become His disciple. And if you did that some time ago and you've drifted away from Him, come back. Confess your unfaithfulness. He'll love you and forgive you again. Tony will be here and I will too. If we can help you, come while we stand and sing.